Hello and welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is episode 74 in which we're going to, in the first half, look at young adult fiction. Yes or no? <laughs> um, and in the second half, we're going to look at two mid-century American novels, Stoner by John Williams and The Easter Parade by Richard Yates. But before we get on to all that, as usual, Rachel, how are you? What are you reading? How's life? I'm fine, thank you. It's almost the summer holidays, so I'm I'm perfectly happy. Um, and yeah, not really well. I've been on a school trip. I've been to Italy actually since I last um, nice, yeah. like not on the school trip to Italy. I would never do that to myself. <laughs> um, was in Italy and then came came back from half term and immediately went to Yorkshire on a school trip with um, the year nines at school. We went to Bronte Country which was yeah. wonderful. We did the same trip last year and it was glorious weather and this year wasn't quite the same uh, experience, but still very nice. And, the and kids I caught loved... you between those weekends. Yes, we you did. We met up in London with Claire from the Captive Oh, Reader. yes, we did. So it's just been so busy. Yeah. Didn't we have a fun time in London? That was oh, nice. We had a lovely time. It was so lovely to see Claire. <laughs> and, you know, Claire's practically convinced me to move to Vancouver. So. <laughs> yes, you seem pretty set on it. Yeah. So that's a, that's a new podcast, maybe. Watch the space a couple of years' time. It's going to be me and Claire. What? I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm ousted. You are. Well, you can join in. We could do, like, a, can you do this sort of thing with three people? I don't know. Yeah, people do, sure. don't they? Yeah. There we are. Great. It'll be transatlantic. Oh, my gosh. I mean, finding time to do it when we're both in the same time zone is pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we'll make it work. We'll make it work. I'll move to Canada as well. I'm coming. <laughs> Oh, you liked it when you visited last time. I did, yeah. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. There's lots of villages in Canada. <laughs> Would Hargreaves like it, though? That's the main question. Who cares about Hargreaves? <laughs> I mean, you know that I care about almost <laughs> nothing but Hargreaves. <laughs> oh, um, Reading-wise, you know what? I've just been rocketing through books lately. Okay. Um, yeah, I've, um, I've just finished the summer book, just literally before we started recording which is by Toby Janssen which you've always spoken very highly of I have. Um, did you like it and I thought well Simon likes it so much I'll give it a try and really enjoyed it actually it wasn't quite what I was expecting because it's it's not really a novel as such is no, it it's more no. sort of grouping of of moments I would say vignettes Vignettes. I was going to say vignettes, and I thought, oh, that sounds a bit knobby, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that did not hold me back. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, I thought it was just utterly charming and lovely, and I love the relationship between Sophia, the little girl, and her grandmother, and the... Yeah, hold, just, hold thoughts on that for next time, of course. Oh, yes, yes. we're going to talk about it in the future, but it's lovely, so yeah. if anybody is looking for a non-demanding summary read, then I would recommend that. It's very short as well. It's, it's yeah. about 150 pages or so, so it's not a not one that you're going to find overwhelming. It's not, it'd be nice, actually, to lie on a beach and read it, I think. Hmm. Take you away. Um, what else have I just read? I'm just trying to think. I mean, I've read so many books in the last couple of days, I can't... I've been reading lots of non-fiction, actually, Um which always seems to... I'm terrible at reading non-fiction, especially when it's full of lots of facts and they just drift <laughs> out of my mind immediately. But I've been reading... I read a book. I had a friend stay with me, um, my really good friend from New York, um, a couple of weeks ago, and she 
recommended a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson to me. And it's about injustice um, in the American penal system towards mm. black, black people. And it was very um, harrowing. Yeah, I'm sure um, but fascinating. And then I went from that onto another book that was mentioned, well, that some he'd mentioned, he hadn't mentioned in that book, but I've seen it elsewhere about racial bias. So I've just read that book as well, which was very interesting, but again, very factual. So yes. um, it's not really something you can sum up briefly, but it's, yeah, so I've, I've read some sort of thought provoking stuff. And then I've now got a pile of books to read, ready to start planning for next year at school. So, you know, it just goes on. Oh, I see that your drilling neighbour has taken to hammering instead. Yes, I know. Yeah. Should we just should we just carry on? Yeah, we'll carry on unless it gets unbearable. Apologies to anyone who can hear hammering in the background. Apologies. Um, I've I've got a, a DIY system going on, a down situation going on downstairs, but hopefully it's not going to be too annoying. Yes, <laughs> half past six on a Saturday. Why? Rude. Rude. I'll do my best to edit it out where where possible. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I have been doing, in fact, this is day 18 of my attempt to read 25 books in 25 days, which I did last year. Well, I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah, yeah. So I did it last year and it was really fun. So I thought I'd do it again this year. Um, You're basically reading a book a day. Book a day. Yeah. And I mean, short books, obviously. Right. Um, although this year I'm also trying to get them to have names in the title to go with my project <laughs> names thing. And turns out I don't have that many very short books with names in the title. So um, some of them have been probably too long to try and read in a day and I've been getting grumpy with it. But um, today's is, is short. It's called um, Sergeant Clough Stands Firm by Gil North? Jill North? I don't know how you pronounce G-I-L. Um, let's say Gil, which is one of the British Library crime classics. Ah, oh, I love these books. Yes, I mean, I, I love them. And I, I can't quite decide how I feel about this one. It's the first in an apparent series about Sergeant Clough. Um, and it's one of those books where I can't work out if the characters are misogynistic or if the author is misogynistic. Um, right. And I think it might be the latter. So it's published in 1960. Um, so Which feels late. a bit late to be misogynistic, yeah. doesn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, not that it was ever appropriate, but yes, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> it was fine until 1955. It's a bit late for classic classic crime as well. So, I mean, one of the ways it's misogynistic is that every time a woman is mentioned, dead or alive, her breasts are mentioned first. Oh. And it's like, I don't need to know no, what a woman's breasts no. are like, when, no. particularly when it's a dead body. But anyway, oh, no, Simon. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. And I'm keeping going. It's very. It's only 160 pages or something. And at the moment, it doesn't. It seems extremely obvious what's happened. So I'm hoping there's a twist in the tale as well. So otherwise, well, all around this yeah. sounds a bit rubbish, frankly. Maybe not the best one of the yeah. So ah. we'll see. But um, but yeah, it's been it's been fun. I've li- lined up tomorrow. I'm reading a short book that Os- Osbert Sitwell Sitwell wrote about uh, Charles Dickens. Same. Oh, no, what I love about the fact that you've got so many books yeah. is that no matter what challenge you set yourself, <laughs> you seem to have an absolute bookshelf full it's of true. books ready yeah, so to meet your needs. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so I suppose perhaps if I if I sort of pigeonholed myself into a corner with books I had to read, I'm sure I'd manage to find things. But it's 
It's a good way to, sorry, I keep interrupting you, I'm having sort of disconnected thoughts. It's a good way to force yourself to read stuff, I suppose. Yeah, and also I quite like that it makes me pick things off the shelves that I might not otherwise have done, and just, you know, sort of uh, random smattering of things. Um, And some of them are very good. In fact, yesterday I read uh, Mrs. Tim Carries On by D.E. Stevenson, that was good fun, the second of the Mrs. Tim books that um, Dean Street Press have just republished. That was probably too long to try and read in an evening, <laughs> but oh. I did it. You did it anyway. I did it, it anyway. And it, I mean, in terms of time, it was fine. It's just it's just not that fun to sit and read something for four hours in a row. No, I can't, I can't do that. My attention span isn't long enough. Yeah, I don't think I should do it again. <laughs> but today I've spread it out. Yeah. Um, um, can I, and can I ask a question about what happens after you've read the book? So mm-hmm. presumably you're rocketing through a lot of books that you've not read before. Yes. So if you don't like any of those books or think, I won't read that again, are they going back on the shelf or are they going to the charity shop? Um, I think, I mean, they would go to a charity shop if I, de- if I really didn't like them. I don't think any of them have quite got there. Um, I think, I yeah, I, I don't have the whole, if I'm not going to read it again, it goes. It, it would have to be me actively disliking the book, it goes. Um, I just otherwise put them back and think, oh, maybe I'll read this one again sometime. Who knows? I'm not going to think about that. So when I come and stay with you, then <laughs> we're going to get, we're going to start culling, I think. I think we're not going to do that, but we'll not. see. <laughs> you can certainly ask questions about whether I want to cull them and I can say no. So that'll be great. I'm going to Marie Kondo your bookshelf. It's going to be great. You'll have to touch it and see whether it makes you feel any joy. I and if it, it doesn't, then does. it's going. All does. I mean, if we do that for all my books, it will do nothing else. That would happen. One book I want to mention that I've been listening to for a while, um, sure. my, although now I have a new job and a much shorter commute, I don't know when I'm going to listen to it, um, is a book by Mary Chumley called Diana Tempest. Because I know you've read Red Pottage. I think I'm right in saying that. That's a lie. I have got Red Pottage, but I've never got around to reading it. Oh, I think you'd love it. Yeah. But in which case, you don't need to hear my recommendation of further Mary Chumley. Because I I don't know how easy it is to get a print copy of that, but it's on LibriVox, the the free audio um, site for books that are out of copyright. Someone has read it on there. And like Red Pottage, as you will know when you read it, it's this very bizarre but somehow really works mixture of melodramatic sensation fiction and comedy of manners and she just she straddles those two genres in a way that shouldn't work but somehow does so on the one hand in this book you've got someone who's accidentally put a price on his nephew's head and is trying to find the person or the people who've agreed to try and kill his nephew on the other hand you've got diana tempest falling in love with dashing young men and it all all works together So anyone who wants to send that for free, you can if you Google LibriVox and Dino Tempest, you should find a very nice reading by a man called Simon Evers. Ah. Yes. Basically, I'm just listening to everything he reads because he's extremely good at, at narrating, and um, and it's a bit of, because it's free and it's members of the public doing it is a bit of a mixed bag. So once once you find a good and you just want to listen to whatever they like, and he tends to like the Edwardian and late Victorian fiction. So great. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's look at our first half, because that seems like a good place to start, <laughs> um, with YA, or young adult fiction, yes or no. And I will start, before I ask you questions about it, by saying that I have, I think I've finally come to terms 
with the term YA because I hated it for so long, but it's been a losing <laughs> battle because young adults are people in their 20s and maybe 30s. We, I'm a young adult. Young adults are not people who are not adults. That is what they should call teenage fiction. Not adults. N.A. fiction. <laughs> or younger than adults. That's fine. Y.T.A. fiction. <laughs> has that ever, has that, is that annoy you? Is that, is that something you've never, never been bothered no, by? I, I never, can, I never thought about it. Um, but now you mention it, it is a bit of an odd, it is a bit of an odd term, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, you made me so cross for so long, but 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 I feel, I felt like the sands were not shifting in my direction, so I've given up and enjoying them. I think it's what I find quite interesting about young young adult fiction is, I mean, traditionally is what we would have called teenage mm, fiction, mm. and certainly when I was going to the library as a child, and you know you have the stickers on the spines, it always had teen on written on it, yeah, yeah. Um, just to differentiate between stuff that probably would have had references to sex and stuff in it um, that you wouldn't read if you were, you know, under 13, I guess. But I think um, I think that the readership of, of those books seems much more um, flexible than it was when we were that age. I think certainly mm. it's I think it's an American thing because I think young adult fiction from my understanding of it largely comes out of America these days. It's a huge market in America. And certainly when I got to the age of, I don't know, 14, 15, it was you went on to reading adult books, like books that your parents would read or classics mm, or whatever. Yeah. There wasn't really anything written specifically apart from, you know, maybe Judy Bloom or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas I think in the last 20 years or so, there's been this huge explosion of fiction that seems to be explicitly written for people that age who are 15 16 um 17 that kind of age group and also early 20s and a lot of people in their early 20s are still reading that and it seems to be a lot of either quite intense relational stuff helping people come to terms with sexual their sexuality and um relationships and that kind of thing and also um Certainly, whenever I the books that the kids at my school read, it's the fantasy, the mm-hmm. the um kind of magic that those worlds that have have been created by, and lots of them are series as well that they really enjoy, and all of them are American writers. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. It, it's something that I wasn't really aware of until, or certainly even when we were that age. Um, and now I often see either specialist bloggers or friends I know mm-hmm. who who aren't you know who aren't teenagers who are twenties thirties forties who almost exclusively read young adult fiction and I do find it slightly bizarre if someone in say their forties only reads young adult fiction because I don't really understand why you'd want to sort of not access the rest of literature but and I do know some people who who We'll do that, and they always, they'll always say it's because you know you, there's all this wide, wide variety of themes, all these different types of diverse characters, and those things are true of young adult fiction increasingly, I think. But mm-hmm. there's a, it's not like that's not true of the rest of the world's fiction. So no, that I find strange. And personally, I have read very little young adult fiction. My friend Paul is always thrilled when we do a topic about which I know very little, <laughs> <laughs> and loves to highlight it to me. So this is for you, Paul. <laughs> Um, but I think I'm right in saying that you read more. But before um, 
before I ask you about specific titles, uh, I'm interested to know, other than obviously the marketing, what what you think makes something young adult fiction? What what's the ingredients in it that might set it apart from a from an adult novel? Oh well, uh, th- I think there are actually um, there are actually criteria that are set out by pub- by the publishing. Oh Institute. really? Okay. Yes. So as far as I'm aware, a young adult no- novel normally the protagonist ha- it would be a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, normally nineteen or under around eighteen, seventeen. There's always a romantic relationship um, okay. involved within the novel. You know, regardless of, of the gender of the protagonist or the sexual orientation, there's always some kind of romantic relationship. Um, and normally there it's action focused. Okay. So it's, I think if a, if the protagonist is over the age of 18, it would be considered not really young adult because they want, the publishing industry tends to want young adult novels to be about four teenagers and about teenagers, if you see what I mean. That's interesting. I assume the language used is, or, or the sentence structure, all that sort of thing, is likely to be less experimental, less advanced. Maybe that's not the case, I don't know. Yeah, I think to a certain extent. And you've, in my experience of reading young adult novels, it's a lot of first-person narratives. It's a lot of present-tense oh, okay. narratives. Um, and quite... Not always, not exclusively, but often quite colloquial in tone and um, because obviously it's, it's normally in the voice of a teenager. So it sounds lots of slang and, you know, stuff that they're going to recognize as being. That's a lot of the stuff that's obviously set in the in the current and a lot of it's set in the current world. So it's references to, you know, current affairs, shops, films, that kind of thing. Um, and the ones that are set in created fantastical worlds um, also don't really tend to be that challenging vocabulary-wise. Yeah, yeah. Because I think when I was a teenager, there were some things a bit like this, but the things I read were Point Horror Books, Loved Those, mm-hmm. and Sweet Valley High. Um, neither of which, well, I mean, some of the Point Horror Books were in first person, but um, and obviously, Sweet Valley High had relationships in, but neither of them felt—I don't know—they authentic in the way that I think teen fiction is now. They were—they were clearly written by adults um, and about lives that most people don't live, either because they're not being murdered or because they're not super rich Californian beautiful people. <laughs> <laughs> so those felt more like escapists, and I feel like now it's more about. Em- empathetic characters um, I mean I will be honest most of what I know about <laughs> young adult fiction comes from movie adaptations of them but um, yeah it seems more like everyday lives rather than bizarre yeah, un- unattainable think, lives yeah there's definitely a, a trend or a move towards young adult fiction reflecting the diversity of young adult experiences and lives and I think because a lot of it does come out of America diversity is a real keywords and racial diversity gender diversity sexual orientation diversity um there's also a big push on thinking about you know uh what we would refer to as you know difficult upbringings dysfunctional homes that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and it's very much i think nowadays young adult fiction i mean uh, this is just my opinion i don't know whether this is what everyone thinks but i think there's more of a 
a desire to use literature and fiction as a way to help young people feel supported and connected to others who are going through the same experiences as them um, and reading about people like them. So growing up, obviously, a lot of people, teenagers feel like alone or they feel like they're the only one who's going through what they're going through. And by having this huge plethora of fiction that is intentionally trying to explore all of the different gamut of human experience at that age um, is designed to help teenagers have a an emotional connection I suppose and help them feel a bit more normal um, and help them to express how they're feeling through reading about someone who's going through the same thing as them I think it's quite for me it feels quite psychologically motivated in the sense of you know we need to help these young people um, what's how would I describe it kind of process what it is to go through this quite challenging Mm. time with all your hormones and your feelings and all the emotions you have that you don't really know what to deal with and fiction is a really great way to write about uh well well, it's a really great way to explore with with young people in a non-threatening way I suppose what it is um to feel these ways and I think it helps that most of these books have a positive ending so you can kind of see well I feel like this right now and everything feels like it's a disaster but this character felt that way too and then actually they had a happy ending so I'll get my happy ending too I feel like it's quite it's like therapeutic in a way a lot of it okay well um i have i have read some that i will talk about um but first do you do you read much i mean i guess for school yeah i mean i only read it for school terms i wouldn't i mean i don't i don't want to sound really snobby about it but personally i think i'm not a teenager so why would i want to read stuff that's for teenagers i'm past that stage of my life and i don't Mm. it doesn't um it doesn't hold much interest for me in that sense. I read it because I like to be able to recommend stuff to my students and also I like to keep up to date with what's going on in the literary world. And there are some, and obviously I also teach some of these books because it's not always appropriate to teach adult books, especially to the younger years of mm. secondary school. You want to find something that deals with um, interesting things, but without having to deal with a lot of, you know, inappropriate references or things that some parents might not like their kids reading, that kind of thing. And also the language is more accessible, obviously. Yeah. Um, so what's good? What if you're this what's good? So, I mean, I, I really like historical young adult fiction and there's a big push on that at the moment. And I really love uh, Ruta Sepetis is one of my favourite young adult writers. Um, she's won the Carnegie Awards before. So she um, has Lithuanian heritage and she writes about um a lot about uh she's got two books so um that are both kind of about world war Two and the experiences of people in eastern europe um that are not really very well known about so people in lithuania latvia those sorts of countries that were um that have kind of been written out of history in many ways um because they've got quite small populations and people didn't really realize how much devastation happened. Um, so between shades of gray is fantastic. Um, not to be confused, the 50 shades of gray. <laughs> no, no. Quite. Um, <laughs> and, um, Oh, what's her other one called that she recently wrote that I feel like I prefer this one. She's also written another book that's, that's set in new Orleans, which I haven't read. Um, but that's supposed to be very good as well. 
um salt to the sea that's the one other one that i really enjoyed um i also i, mean, I don't know whether all of these count as young adult fiction because there's also middle grade fiction which is for i think up to the age of about 11 or 12 um but there's I've heard people talk about that. I never knew what it was. So I think that's yeah. So I think it's quite. It's kind of like, these are like American terms as well. So it's they're gradually coming over here to help categorise. Because sometimes I've been parents will often ask me for advice, and I'm like, oh, I don't really know because you know there's some some thirteen. Like I feel like thirteen is is the kind of age where children start to transition to slightly older fiction. But then obviously some thirteen year olds are more mature than others, and it's quite difficult to tell. So. There seems to be a cutoff point at 12 where stuff that's written for children 12 and under, so like school years, year eight and under, tends to be there's no sex, there's relationships aren't really in there. It's quite um, focused around friendships, parents, that kind of thing. And then once you get to 13 plus, it's more rooted around romantic relationships. So what I quite like about the historical ones are there's normally still a relationship in there somewhere but (laughs) the focus is more on the story and the setting and that's what makes it enjoyable to teach because you've got more that you can you can talk about i really like um so i really love those and there's also another book that i loved recently that was historical was um wolf hollow um by lauren Wolk, which is set just after world war Two, and it's, it's i mean a lot of these books are just heartrending about a girl who um there's it's, she lives in the middle of nowhere in america and it's i think actually maybe that would be middle-aged fiction middle grade i'm not sure <laughs> yes middle-aged fiction is more fun middle-aged yeah <laughs> um there's no romantic relationship in there but it's it's just a wonderful book about her kind of realizing the vulnerability of others and there's this guy that lives in the woods and he's misunderstood because he turns out he's got like post-traumatic stress disorder from world war one or um and it's just it's difficult to explain the plot but it's it's fantastic um and i've thought about teaching that and then things a bright girl can do which came out last year which is a suffragette novel Mm. um which is really good and that would be considered young adult because it's got romantic relationships in it um and i really enjoyed that and i recommended that to a lot of my kids the carnegie shortlist this year has been quite interesting actually because um that's the prize for what's called children's literature but young adult literature is included um and the a couple of last i think it was last year they opened up it used to just be uk writers and now it's been opened up to any writer from around the world so the shortlist is now massively american of course. <laughs> which I I don't agree with because I think it's America has got a load of literary prizes for this age group and it's really pushing out. There aren't that many UK writers uh, writing for young adults and children. Um, and I feel like it's kind of pushing them out a bit because you've got so many people writing in the US, they're bound to overtake the list. Um, but the trend this year has been books written in poetry um which i didn't think my kids would like but actually the boys absolutely loved it but it was more popular with the boys than anyone else um absolutely loved it and they said they they liked it because it was shorter obviously um but they also said it was really interesting for them to read because it allowed them to focus more on what was the emotions behind the story because they weren't having to get through loads of text 
um, and they were focusing on specific words and emotions. They really enjoyed that. And that's really starting to become a trend now in young adult is, is poetry. That is not what I expected. Okay, mm. interesting. So it's, yeah, it's really nice. I, mean, I I think there's a lot. I what I really like about young adult novels is they are dealing with quite complex emotional situations, but in a way that is relatable to children. Whereas you know, when I think when we were that age, you know, you had to go straight into reading stuff that you probably weren't quite able to understand fully yet. And I think a lot of of people our age who don't read don't read precisely because they spent their teenage years being forced to read books that they couldn't quite grasp um and couldn't relate to and just found boring so you know certainly when i was 15 16 we were reading at school thomas hardy for example <laughs> i just don't yeah. think somebody that age can access that yet certainly not everyone anyway no um right gosh there's a lot there but um Sorry, yeah, that's a bit of a monologue, isn't it? It's all right. Sorry. Yeah, well, you are the subject expert here. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I did do some research by reading some myself for those podcasts. Sure. Um, pause, round of applause. Uh, so I don't remember how I discovered John Green originally, but I think uh. I've been watching his YouTube channel he does with his brother for a very long time, um, maybe I know, eight, nine years. Um and that's, you know, they're very informative, they're quite funny, uh, and I, have, I think he had published some novels by then, but he hadn't become, it was pre-The Fault in Our Stars, so he wasn't massive in, in the way that he has become. And I did read The Fault in Our Stars at that time, which I enjoyed, and then, oh sorry, just kicked Hargreaves, um, and then um, <laughs> this week I read An Abundance of Catherines, which was his second novel, which is about a uh, young boy, or young adult, who is um only dated girls called Catherine to that point and and what he's and yeah whether he can date someone else um which yeah I enjoyed I thought it was quite fun it was I think because I know John Green's voice and mannerisms and all, and personality quite well I could just imagine him I know narrating it he's a very likable person so that helped and I'm currently reading one by Adam Silvera called and this is a, a great title I think they both die at the end so, spoilers in the title right there, which I read a review on on a blog called Guilt and Dust, and the premise sounded so interesting that um, I thought I'd get it, and I didn't even realise, in fact, until after looking it up a bit more, that it was a young adult book. I just read the premise and thought it was just a novel. Um, and the premise is that it's a world where everybody gets called on the day they're going to die. So they get called at midnight, or around midnight, and they're going. To, they're told that they will die at some point in the next twenty-four hours, but they don't know when. Um, and the two main characters in it, two different teenage boys, have both received that call that morning. Oh god! I think it's a good premise. I think it's interesting. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And I'm enjoying that. I'm halfway through. Um, it is weird reading. I think it's one of the reasons that I don't read that many. It's weird reading cool characters. Um, mostly because I'm not cool, but also because I was thinking, is the author getting this right? There's one character who just uses the word mad to mean very or a lot of all the time. And I just don't feel like I'm the sort of person who can read that was mad fun and not like, not just feel stupid. <laughs> but I did look up the, the author and he's late in his late 20s, which is sickening. So maybe <laughs> maybe he is cool. I don't know. <laughs> but I just, I'm always slightly wary of anything written for teenagers that it might be written by somebody who is you know four times the age of the person they're writing about trying to pretend that they're cool 
and with it and all that sort of thing um and failing but um how would i know i don't know what teenagers say i didn't know what teenagers said when i was a teenager <laughs> 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 so, but i'm enjoying that I'm halfway through that um and i yeah i mean i guess that is a fantasy or at least a fantastic novel and john green is much more down to earth but from my <laughs> from my uh sample group of I think that makes a total of three young adult books that I've ever read. I'm not sure I can draw any massive conclusions, but I'm I'm enjoying them, but also feeling a bit of like a fraud at the same time, thinking this isn't these books are not written for me. I'm very much an interloper in this world, and that's something I can't quite shake when I'm reading them. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like you know, adults don't really read children's books. Mm. Unless you're, you're, you know, you, you're reading it to a child and, or you're having like a nostalgic moment and you're going back to a childhood yeah, favorite yeah. while you're, you know, on a winter's afternoon or something. Um, and so it does feel a bit, it does, I mean, I have exactly the same feelings as you. I don't understand why somebody who wasn't a teenager would want to read a book for children, uh, for teenagers, unless they were doing it for some, purpose so for mm. me i do it for work purposes um but on a i see a lot of people on the tube reading uh, adults reading books for that age group i think i don't know i think there's an accessibility about it um that's quite exciting for people that's quite interesting for people i mean everybody was reading the fault in our stars not, not just teenagers mm-hmm. um and there Have are I have. I was forced to by the girls in my last school. He said, you make us read stuff. Now we're going to make you read this. And I was like, well, that's fair enough, to be honest with you. I mean, I do make you read stuff. So, I mean, I just found it very emotionally manipulative but um, and also terribly written. But then I'm an English teacher, so I notice these things. A lot of people don't notice these things. So it's it's just exciting for them. And a lot of people love fantasy. I don't I'm not into fantasy at all. It's not my thing. So I don't. I don't enjoy that kind of literature, but the the young adult fantasy writers are apparently, from what I've heard, very good. And a lot of people who are adults do read young adult fantasy for that very reason, because they love the fantasy aspect of it. So I think, you know, obviously people are free to read what they want to read. If they enjoy it, that's great. I think it's um, there's a real variety of fiction coming out of America that and again, it's because it's not challenging vocabulary wise or intellectually particularly challenging they're easy reads yeah because i say i mean i i say i've read from the stars which for those who don't know it's about teenage cancer patients um i found it um do i think it was well written i don't know i just I i find with a novel like that that's written so simplistically that it's hard for it to be either well or badly written it's more just like Here's what's happening. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it, it does yeah, exactly what it yeah. says. It's undemanding to read, isn't it? Yeah, and it's certainly not. I said, well, I certainly I didn't find it badly written in the way that I found find an you know overwritten literary novel bad if it's not done well because it's just there's, there's not really any obstacle between you and the understanding of what's going on. I guess um, it's not. He's not trying to do anything particularly outlandish with with the style it's more just like here are some characters and here's a story and i you know i enjoyed it but um it certainly was emotionally manipulative but i don't know if you can do a book about cancer patients that isn't emotionally manipulative particularly yeah. easily i don't know um but teenagers was, was, love that kind of thing well yeah every book is about cancer for a while wasn't it yeah. <laughs> i did read a very good book um not a 
young adult book. Uh, Helen Garner wrote The Spare Room all about someone dying of cancer, and that was yeah. um, very good, although extremely difficult to read. Um, not because it was, you know, opaque or anything, but because of you know, the subject matter was, yeah, yeah, was handled so emotionally. Whereas, you know, I, I didn't find The Fault in Our Stars particularly emotional because it was sort of, I don't know, I didn't connect with them because I'm... Not because I'm oh god, I cried like a baby. But this is maybe. why I, I was annoyed with it because I was like, "This is ticking every box that's going to make a girl cry." Do you know what I mean? I feel like, yeah, for me, it was just so, so obvious what was, you know, what, why they'd been created. That was maybe I was just being well, too I know, stubborn. but it's still, you know, yeah. it just gets to me. The thing is, it's just <laughs> well, we must do something right stop- then. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but it's it's I do yeah, it doesn't sit, it doesn't sit massively comfortably with me. Um, just because I think as well like, to read that kind of stuff as an adult, mm. I think I've got so much amazing fiction open to me that is beautifully written and forms the classic canon of the shared cultural world in which we live. Why Good would Lord. I want to spend my time <laughs> um, reading stuff like throwaway fiction, essentially? Yeah, I was trying to think back to um, you know more half a century or more ago what might have counted as young adult if it existed and the only thing i could come up with was i capture the castle by Dodie smith which does feel like i I don't know if it's just because the main character is a teenage girl writing in the first person um that it makes it feel more like it's of this world than other books that she wrote but um i don't know that there's only in my mind like dotted lines between i capture the castle and the sorts of books oh yeah definitely i think that's a that's a good a good it's thought not, not as well. Many, yeah. No, and I suppose um, the later Anne of Green Gables books, um, the ones where she's in her twenties and she's married, um, might have been suited to. But yeah, I don't think. I mean, I just don't think there was a massive market for it, and I think because teenagers have got much more purchasing power these days, um, there's a lot more mm, that's mm. that's specifically written for and, and aimed at them, which is no bad thing because I think it's it's great that yeah, they've got yeah. access to all these books and the the kids at my school love reading and they love the fact that they've got all these books that are, are catering for them and what they're interested in. Um, it's just for me as an adult, I don't, I don't, I'm not against reading them and I can completely understand why people do read them, but it's it's just not for me. When I think of all the other things I could read, it, it they would not be top of my list and I certainly would not exclusively read young adult fiction, which I know some adults do and yeah. that I am I feel like is a bit limiting. Yes, I think we're on the same page here. So, I mean, in the teal book decision making, I'm going to end up on no for me. Um, I'm, I'm quite enjoying my little foray into them at the moment, but yeah, I did, it's not something that... I'm eager to add more of to my literary diet. No, likewise. But glad it exists and it will make hopefully a new generation of people love fall in love with reading. So yeah, and you know, there's that again, that's something to celebrate, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hi, just jumping in to say, don't forget, you can see all the books and authors we mentioned at stuckinabook.com. You can also find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books and there's loads of people to give special thanks to now so special thanks to michelle jane heather liana grace randy mark and elizabeth wow thank you very much to all of you do get in touch if you have any ideas for future episodes and we love it if you are able to rate and review us at your podcast app of choice right back to the second half
I can't remember quite how we came up with this, but we're doing Stoner by John Williams and The Easter Parade by Richard Yates. Which would you like to introduce us to? Can I do The Easter Party because I just read it? It's called The Easter Parade, but yes. Yes, sorry. (laughs) The book that I just read. I keep in my head, I kept calling it The Easter Party when I was reading it. Which is a novel by Vita Sackville West that I really liked. Oh, right. But maybe that's what you're thinking of. Maybe it is, yeah. Go for it. Oh, right, you want me to go first. Okay, sorry. Um, so the Easter Parade is um, about two sisters, Sarah and Emily, and they are growing up in New York. They've got a mother who called Pookie who is um, rather problematic, rather eccentric, rather difficult, and a father called Walter, and to have their parents separate when they're quite young. And the mum moves them around a lot. She's never got any money. So all is a bit chaotic. Um, and as they grow up, Sarah is always the beautiful one. Um, and Emily is always the kind of studious one. He always feels that her mother doesn't love her as much. And as they both get into adulthood, both of the sisters go down quite different paths. So Sarah gets married quite young um, and moves out to Long Island um, with her, her new husband. He's got a sort of vaguely aristocratic um, family who don't really seem to have much money anyway. Mm. Um, And then she quite rapidly has children. And then Emily goes down a different path. She goes to college and then moves to New York and um, tries to build a career. And the book follows them through their adulthoods and the different lives that they live. And you see their relationship and with each other, with their parents, um, and yeah, it's a typical Yeatsian novel looking at basically disappointed dreams, yeah. <laughs> really. Um, yeah. Yes, great. Thank you. Um, and yes, yeah, Stoner by John Williams is not, as I had originally thought, about someone who takes drugs. <laughs> <laughs> is about somebody called Stoner, who, um, who was surnamed Stoner, who is from a poor rural family, a farming family, uh, and he's the first member of his family to go to university, and he leaves, he goes off to study agriculture, but um, falls in love with literature whilst he's there and transfers to a literature course, slightly to the confusion of his family. Uh, whilst he's around there, he falls in love with a, a beautiful and rather strange young woman called Edith, and marries her and has a very unsatisfactory marriage with her. Um, in in every sense of the word, um, and he becomes a literary professor um, uh, with some success with the students, but also gets into a uh, embittering and long running feud with with a colleague there. Um, and again, it's sort of a tale of disappointment in in both professional and personal life. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about disappointing mid-century fiction today. <laughs> That's going to be a cheery type of topic. So I just read both of them in the past, I don't know, weeks and months. So both this year. Uh, um, when did you read these? Well, you've just read Easter Parade, but when did you read Stoner? Um, well, I'd read the Easter Parade before, but I oh, had you okay. Um, several years ago, I went on a binge of Richard Yates and read most of his novels. Um, but Stoner, I read a few months ago, I think I'd had it on my shelf for a while and I'd heard about it for a while and lots of people said, oh, it's fantastic, it's fantastic, but I just hadn't got around to reading it. So we actually read it for my school um, staff book club, um, which which was really great, actually, because it was nice to be able to discuss it afterwards because it's quite a discussable book, I think. 
let's hope so let's mm. see yeah. <laughs> yes i got a copy back when vintage was sending copies to every blogger in the world <laughs> <laughs> um around the time it became a massive uh success i think it won the hmm, costa so it won some big book prize that year despite being a, a reprint from the 60s or 50s or whenever it was originally published so that was interesting because that doesn't often happen but yeah it became a big success and i can see why i thought it was brilliantly written really um what these two books definitely have in common is amazing writing style a very sensitive understanding of psychology brackets at least to an extent we'll just we'll discuss what i mean by that more in in due course but yeah i think you had talked on the podcast about stone or mentioned stone and how much you loved it and i am yeah i definitely thought williams has a, a really beautiful way of expressing someone going through difficult times and i felt he created a very empathetic character very flawed character but one that um i don't know if i loved him but i loved the way he was written about um what did you think of yeah i mean i know that you you liked the book because you've mentioned that before but what do you think about him as a character i found him i found him infuriating in many ways mm. i but I mean, we talked about this a lot at Book Reap and, and we, a lot of us were frustrated by the fact that he just accepted the conditions of his marriage in particular. Um, mm. so he has this marriage, he marries young, he seems to fall in love at first sight with, with this girl and, um, they, they have that really interesting discussion, like they talk all night the first time they meet and, you feel as the reader that they've got this this deep emotional connection but it turns out that they're both quite emotionally damaged I think by their childhoods they're brought up at a time when you're not encouraged to talk about your feelings or yourself and neither of them are able to get beyond that and I just thought you know what you need to sit your wife down and you need to tell her how you feel and you need to separate from her and you need to go off and and, and just have your own life he allows her to take his child away from him. He allows her to rob him of any joy in his life. Um, and when he does meet somebody else and he doesn't take that chance to, to live the life that he really wants. And, and I found that passivity in him really frustrating. But at the same time, I could completely understand why he was the way he was and I couldn't be annoyed at him about it. So it was what I loved about his characterization is that he's so real in that sense that he is somebody who's found themselves trapped. And for many reasons, he decides to stay in that trap because on the one hand, he's unhappy, but at the same time, he's not unhappy enough to upset everything. And he is, as you say, like, so passive at mm. home. Passivity is exactly his sort of central quality in his domestic life, which interestingly is not in his professional life. Mm. Um, there's a, this this feud begins uh, as a professor when he essentially refuses to let a PhD candidate um, get get by without doing any work just because he's the sort of protege yeah. of another of one of his colleagues and this becomes something that that the colleague he um, goes up against can then ruin his professional career. Um, side note: the, the, there's a wonderful scene where he basically cuts through all of the bluster and nonsensical literary chat that this guy has to ask him. Do you know anything about literature, basically? Um, which I I loved, having spent a lot of my adult life around English literature academics. Definitely, I know what that sort of 
talking nonsense in lots of abstract terminology rather than actually talking about a topic looks like but also I would have failed that literary test he gave (laughs) he's like oh can you can you tell me like five renaissance playwrights and can you tell me three contemporaries of Chaucer who influenced his writing blah blah blah. thinking well I know a lot about what I did my defil in I can tell you anything you like about (laughs) my thesis that I wrote I definitely can't tell you about things you know, many centuries before that. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was a bit mean, and I felt very challenged. <laughs> but um, but it was a great scene to read. But um, to pick up what you said about reality, I definitely thought he was psychologically very real, and that if you can understand someone, you can you know it's a lot easier to to read about them. I felt where Williams really fell down for me was the wife, who to me never had any psychological reality. Or depth, and the, maybe that's because Stoner didn't see it and didn't understand her. But it felt often that all her decisions and her personality was just there to motivate whatever the next part of the plot was, or whatever Stoner's next action would be. Right from the moment she first arrives, when you think clearly she doesn't like him, she's being very mysterious and odd for no reason. There's, there's, um, I don't know if she's supposed to be this really intriguing character, but she does seem to me to be a very bizarre and unlikely character. But, um. As, speaking as a woman, Rachel, what did you make of her? Or, you know, uh, speaking as a person, if you want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I found her I found her very realistic, actually. Um, Interesting. Yeah, no, I could... She, she was somebody who also felt trapped, and she took out her feelings of anger at her own situation on him I felt that she was incredibly vindictive and I think she was I think she was resentful of his career the fact that he he had a life outside of the house that she never had the opportunity to have and she wanted a child and she felt that having that child would would make her happy and give her a purpose and it doesn't and I think that there's I think it's a wonderful portrayal actually of the utter emptiness of what many women's lives at that time must have been that they were expected to find complete fulfilment in their husband, their home and their child. And she finds that that's a lie and she's got nowhere to go with it. Interesting. That was, um, I read a really good blog post by Victoria at uh, Lit Love about this book recently um, called Blood from a Stoner, which I liked as a <laughs> pun. <laughs> um, I'll put a link to it in the notes uh, on stuckinabook.com. But otherwise, if you go to Lit Love wordpress.com you should be able to find it there anyone who wants to where basically she demolishes the book and hated it uh, which oh. i don't agree with but i thought she wrote really interestingly about it so um i can't remember everything she said now that we, so we can't really discuss in depth but one of the things she didn't like was the portrayal of women um or particularly one woman i guess in in the novel so it's interesting to hear you disagree with that um and yeah, it's one of those things where I read it and thought, did I? I did feel feel that I before that that I hadn't really believed her as a as a character, which obviously you, just, you don't didn't find. But um, I hadn't thought it was a deeply misogynistic novel, and then I was thinking back over everything I had thought about it, and it's one of those ones where I think I might need to reread at some point to to not just be swept away by the wonderful writing and to sort of maybe examine a bit more what's going on. But I may not come to the same conclusions that Victoria did, of course. But I thought it was really interesting. Mm. I recommend reading that. But um, we will obviously talk more about Stoner, but yes, let's look at the Easter Parade. Uh, what do you think? Um, I thought it was a very interesting depiction of sisters. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate in having a wonderful sister who I 
love dearly and who's my best friend so I don't really have the um that kind of sense of mm. a very uncomfortable relationship that they have um but I just thought it was incredibly sad incredibly sad book um yes. on both accounts of the sisters neither of whom have the life that they want and I think what's really interesting about Sarah in particular is that from the outside she seems to have this perfect life she's married to this handsome yeah. guy who you know he's he's in he's English so he's different in America as well he's he's got this um family estate that they refer to uh which is really this yeah. ramshackle <laughs> you know a clapboard house on Long Island um and she has these children and she and she's clearly Sarah's intelligent she's got talent she does a little bit of writing on the side and Emily seems quite jealous of her she has all these love affairs and actually her life is empty to her and you get that sense that neither has ever understood what the other thought about them or how the other appreciated them because Sarah has always been something the person that Emily needed to kind of root her like she always relies on her sister saying it's okay Emily she's always looked after her in that sense emotionally um and Emily's always thought that Sarah didn't appreciate her or didn't care about her but then knowing in that moment that she always saw her as something even though she was her little sister always saw her as a free spirit, someone who was living the life that she wanted, maybe in the way that Sarah had never had the courage to do, was really, I thought, emotionally powerful and really interesting as well because, I mean, I know we shouldn't say gender-related things these days, but interesting that Richard Yates was able to write so convincingly about a sister relationship. Yes, I think he does get the psychology of both of them really brilliantly, and I think what I was impressed by, as as you say, they are sisters who are quite different in some ways, but it, it doesn't feel like one of those ones where they're just opposites. And simplistically, one has a life that is the opposite of the other. Mm-hmm. Their lives do take different turns, as you as you say. And one of them has this very settled married life. Well, appears to have this very settled mm-hmm. married life, whereas the other one goes from partner to partner. But he, they're both realistic and real people, and have that many of their sort of foibles, or even their hubris, I guess, comes from the same source the same sort of fractured um marriage that they were of their parents and indeed the front the first line of the novel says that neither of them have happy lives and it started with the divorce of their parents so we know what we're getting in for even if, if you didn't know richard yates before you started you know from the outset that it's not likely to be a cheerful novel mm-hmm. and the only other one i've read was revolutionary road which again i think is brilliant for it it is this depiction of a miserable marriage essentially um so yeah i thought it was extremely good. I think it was it was actually the first book I read in my 25 books in 25 days. So I read it in a day and possibly that wasn't the best way to read it because it does cover such a long period of time. And particularly um, with the one who's not Sarah, Emily, with Emily, with her many different partners, reading them so quickly, it, just felt, it did feel a bit like a sort of merry-go-round of one-on, one-off, one-off. Um, and I think that's probably not the best way to read it so i wouldn't recommend that uh because he does do a good job of building up those each relationship and each time i was thinking well maybe this is the one he seems great this seems to be going well they've described he's described well how they fit together and then something would go wrong um and he'd be gone again so it yeah i again i think what was impressive there is that it's not just 
a series of her making the same mistake with the same sort of person or the same sort of person treating her the same sort of way. It was many different types of of men and each one could potentially have been the right person for her, but each one had a separate reason why it fell apart and they just collectively made her put together for this life where she was unable to be domestically happy. Yeah. I mean, it's... I think what something that Richard Yates does so well in all of his books is is look at the kind of loneliness and the disappointment that's at the heart of many people's lives that people don't talk about um, mm, mm. and how little people ever understand each other um, and I think his books are quite depressing to read I do think every time I've read one of his books I get to the end and think oh my goodness you know Life's awful. Um, <laughs> and I think that's very typical of, of the time he was writing. It's, it's very much the zeitgeist, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s when he was writing. You do get that sense of, you know, the American dream is over. We're all, you know, we're all ha- going to hell in a handcart kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think there is, he is, for me, one of the finest novelists ever at it really looking at the reality of what it is to be human in our modern world and how difficult it is often for us to really connect with other people on a meaningful mm. level beyond the surface and I loved I mean what something that I love about the Easter parade is is the fact that these sisters could grow up together can spend lives together and know so little of the other at the same time yeah that's true um and he does portray that uh, extremely well. Um, would you? Re- what would you recommend from his other books? Well, Revolution New Rages is best, I think. Okay. Um, which is again is heartbreaking. Um, and a really good film as well. I was really impressed by the film. Yes, wonderful film. I mean, Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio can do no wrong in my mind. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, I also really like Young Hearts Crying. That's excellent. Okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't read any of John Williams's other novels. I do think, for me, I thought Stoner was was a perfect, wonderful novel and incredibly moving. Um, also really interesting at looking at where our fulfilment comes from. And I think so often we're we're told that our fulfilment comes from a romantic relationship when actually for him his fulfilment comes out of his work, and that's all that that excites him. And his uh, being a father as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, I loved. I think Hubert Williams wrote so well about the love of literature, mm. and so in the in the first place, Stoner discovering literature and and discovering this world open to him, and then also his love of of passing that on to students. Um, and you know, we both love literature. We've both done English degrees. We've both sort mm. of yeah, we've been in those worlds, and our lives are very enriched by literature. And I I always love reading anyone who can convey well that discovery of what literature can be for a person, um, how it can open open their eyes to a whole new experience. Not specific novels, I mean, just like the whole concept of, of loving literature, I guess, which I'm assuming everyone who listens to this podcast has probably had that experience at some point, but it's quite hard to to write down because that is basically his, other than, you know, his love of his daughter, that is his big love affair, his big, um, is, is with discovering fiction, <laughs> discovering the literary tradition. Yeah. And that's what changes him as a person in, in a good way. Whereas 
his marriage either doesn't change him or makes him worse. So yeah, I love that that element with it. And I think that's hard to do well, and he does do that really well. Whereas I don't think there's really anything in the Easter Parade to offset the the miserableness, the misery rather, of of their lives. There's no sort of underlying section of hope that I can remember. No, there's sort of a hint of it right at the end, but um, but there's nothing alongside that. It's mostly their lives seem to be entirely about their relationships. Yeah. Which I don't think is a fault of the book. I think it's just a feature of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think they're both wonderful novels. And I think, yeah. um, you know, mid-century American writing is, is a real treasure uh, hoard. The golden age, yeah. Yeah. Of, of, I mean, William Maxwell as well. I mean, he's an absolute gem of a writer who's quite similar in his explorations of... Um, What's the book that's quite similar? Um, something dark. Yeah, oh, time or dark. Time or dark in it. Yes, thank you. That's another wonderful one about people who are unable to communicate with each other. Um, yes. Yeah. And loveless marriages, and it's you know. So if that's your jam, run towards that one as well. Yeah, I mean it's going to be a great summer of reading, but at the same time, <laughs> I find them incredibly reassuring in a way to read to think that. You know, well, everyone feels a bit like this sometimes, and that's okay. Well, not for them, it wasn't. But yes, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> um, so yes, I did think they were both great, and it's really hard to choose between them. Do you, have you have you made a decision? Silence. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. I think probably I would go with Stoner. Because I felt that it was, I felt like I I connected a bit more with him as mm, a character, mm. and I was like floods of tears, floods of tears. Whereas um, the Easter parade, I I got like you know tight throat, and I felt a bit prickly a few times, um, but I didn't full on cry. Um, <laughs> that's a good barometer. So that's my that's my barometer. I mean, I did feel quite emotional at times, but then it's just because I was thinking about me and my sister. Um, but otherwise, um, and I do love my brother as well. Just to add in there, but it's yeah, not, it's not the same relationship. He would never <laughs> listen to this, but um, it's it's not the same relationship. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I'm also going to go with Stoner because whilst I. Th- the, f- the flaws that I saw in it that you that you didn't um, agree with that I think there's more of those than there are in the Easter Parade for me I think but I think the highs are higher mm. I think the the psychology of the main character is so brilliant I loved as I say all stuff about loving literature and I think whilst yeah the Easter Parade is just uh, just a great novel it's um, yeah maybe doesn't quite get to those sections of Stoner that really transcended what in, in the things I find in novels normally. Um, but yeah, they are both brilliant, but maybe you don't read them back to back if you want to feel good about the world. Yeah. I mean, it is, they are both a bit of a downer, so, you know, you've got to make sure that you kind of sandwich it in between two more uplifting books, I think. Yeah. (laughs) But love, I think if anyone listening to this has a book group, I think there'd be great books for a group of people to read together and then talk about afterwards because there's so much to pull out. And I think people would feel very differently about them depending on their own life experiences and things. So it's quite good to, to, to have a mixed group of people read them. 
Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Great. Huh? Well, in the next episode, we'll be looking at one book that's more cheerful and one that might not be. So we're looking at um, the summer book by Toby Anson, as Rachel mentioned earlier, and comparing on Rachel's advice with <laughs> birthday letters by um, Ted Hughes. Is it just Ted Hughes? Yeah, which is going to be our first foray into poetry, Simon. I know. Which feels very highbrow, doesn't it? Doesn't it just? Um, come back just to see how much you can't <laughs> manage to do that. <laughs> uh, I can't. I've not read Bethany Letters. I can't imagine what connection there is, but Rachel tells me there will be one. There's always so, a connection. There's always a connection. <laughs> so, yeah, um, look forward to that. I'm talking to you about that next time, Rachel. Simon, you're sounding very uncertain about this. I'm a little uncertain. I'm just worried that I'm going to be exposed to someone who can't talk about poetry. <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. You're going to be just fine. As I always tell my kids, poems are just stories that look different. Oh, that's nice. Oh. I mean, it's not true, but it's nice. Yeah. Um, great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks you're welcome. Everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.